Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Before we begin, I wanted to take note of the events in Buffalo over the weekend, one of the deadliest racist massacres in recent U.S. history. It's a tragedy, and my thoughts are with everyone affected by it. Today, we're gonna preview the biggest day of primary season so far. Five states are holding contests on Tuesday, May 17th, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Idaho, Kentucky, and Oregon. The most anticipated races are the Republican Senate and gubernatorial primaries in Pennsylvania. We'll talk about everything going on there. We're also gonna give you a heads up about other races to watch around the country, including the Lieutenant Governor of Idaho challenging the sitting governor for the Republican nomination and Representative Madison Cawthorn's time to face the voters after numerous scandals. We're also going to introduce a new project we're working on here at 538. In the coming months, we're going to be working with Ipsos to poll Americans about the issues they care most about. And we're approaching it from a bit of a unique perspective, which we're going to discuss. The first poll coming out this week is all about inflation. So here with me to talk about it all is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Hey, y'all. Also here with us is elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Good morning, Galen, and also happy birthday to my mom, whose birthday is today and who is an avid 538 Politics podcast listener. Likewise, happy birthday to Nathaniel's mom. What a lovely surprise. What a great way to start off this Monday morning. Also here with us is elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. So let's dive right into the primaries. As I mentioned, there are a lot of them, and we're also going to record a late night reaction podcast on Tuesday night. So if we don't get to something today, we will get to it later on. There are a lot of house races. I don't think we'll be able to cover every single one, but of course we're going to get into the details soon enough. So stay tuned for that podcast to come out. Maybe, maybe check for it Wednesday morning. Let's begin with the marquee races. There's been a lot of interest in the Pennsylvania Senate primary. It will likely be one of the most competitive general election races. And of course, Dr. Mehmet Oz is running with Trump's endorsement there. So how is Oz currently doing in the polls? Is it a pretty fiercely competitive Republican primary at this point? Yeah, it's a toss up. It's actually pretty funny. It seems like or at least feels like we've had basically the same Republican primary for the last three weeks in a row. We've had these like three way toss up races where Trump has endorsed one candidate. The other candidates are also mostly pretty Trumpy. But, you know, for whatever reason, Trump hasn't endorsed them. And, you know, we're waiting to see whether voters kind of go with Trump's endorsement or what think that somebody else is kind of more convincing. So Oz is in this three way race with billionaire or actually maybe he's just a millionaire, very rich guy, David McCormick. They've both been self-funding their campaigns. They've been raising tons of money and airing lots of ads. And they've basically been duking it out on the airwaves for a long time. Neither one of them has quite made Republican voters be like, yeah, that's the guy I want. Oz in particular is actually underwater in terms of favorability ratings with Republican voters because he's had this long track record of supporting abortion rights and gun control and things like that that don't exactly endear him to 
the Republican base. But kind of taking advantage of this kind of two-way fight has been author Kathy Barnett, who has really surged unexpectedly in the polls in the last week or two. And she has this very compelling life story. She was born after her mother was raped, actually. And she has used this in the light of the Supreme Court's potential overturning of Roe v. Wade to kind of argue for a pro-life position and to say that, you know, I wouldn't exist if my mother had had an abortion. And she also kind of came up through a tough upbringing and poverty and stuff to be this conservative commentator. She's written a book about what it's like to be a black woman in the Republican Party. And she's had some really good debate performances. So she has really pulled into a tie, a three-way tie with Oz and McCormick, despite not having really very much money at all. She's actually had the Club for Growth, an outside group, um, come in on her behalf in the last couple of weeks to push her over the finish line. But her story is really quite surprising. And it's actually caught a lot of Republicans by surprise because a lot of mm -hmm. stuff now is coming out about how kind of far right she is. So for example, she was part of the January 6th riot. She uh, has said really homophobic and Islamophobic things on Twitter before that's kind of just come out in the last few days. And, you know, obviously Republicans now who are discovering this, who might be looking forward to November are thinking, wait a minute, you know, is she going to tank our chances in the general election? Jeffrey and Sarah, do you also see this as basically a three-way tie? Is there any indicator of who might be pulling away at this point? I know, as you mentioned, Nathaniel, the Club for Growth has put some money behind Barnett. Trump has sort of counter-endorsed her, basically said she might have a bright future in the Republican Party if we vet her, but don't vote for her in this primary. And of course, he's endorsed Oz. Has any of this worked to change the dynamic of the race over the past week or so? I mean, I think it's kind of difficult to tell because so much of this is happening at the last minute. Because as Nathaniel spoke to, Barnett is sort of caught some Republican leaders off guard. You do have some outside groups that are supporting Cormac, for instance, who are now trying to run ads attacking Barnett. There's been a lot of news coverage in the last few days of Republican strategists and, and commentators and saying, oh gosh, she might she might be a really problematic general election candidate. Maybe we should be really worried about this and need to consolidate around one of the other candidates. But a lot of this is happening so last minute that I do wonder if it's going to be difficult for some of that messaging against Barnett to actually break through, only because McCormick and Oz and their allies have been just attacking each other for so long and spending so much money doing that, that then to sort of turn here at the last minute put together an opposition research file on somebody that you haven't really bothered to worry about too much and do all that in the span of about a week ahead of a primary and have that message break through and actually have an effect is tough when you spent so much time damaging each other and driving up each other's negative ratings. And that's the thing with Barnett is that there was a Fox News poll where her net favorability was plus 29 among Republican primary voters, which was better than McCormick at plus 22. And Oz, as Nathaniel mentioned, was negative one in that poll in terms of net favorability. So you can see why Barnett is in a position to capitalize on, on this situation. Right. I guess the flip side of that, though, is looking back to the Ohio GOP Senate primary, you know, there was kind of speculation towards the end of that race that maybe Senator Matt Dolan would be able to overtake Vance or maybe Mike Gibbon would Josh Mandel win. And it was still a close race, to be sure. But Vance did pull through in the end. And looking at the polls in aggregate, you know, as Nathaniel mentioned, it is very close within the margin of error, three-way tie. But Oz has consistently led in most of the 
late polls we have. So kind of given that and Trump's endorsement, I'm interested to see how that plays out. Obviously, for Trump's track record, if Oz doesn't win for some of the reasons Jeffrey and Nathaniel cited around not being as popular with a lot of Republican voters in the state, that would be a big loss for him. But I do think, you know, it's kind of this question of who in the GOP is fielding a lot of this discussion, but a lot of it hearkening back to 2010 and this idea that the Republicans didn't field good candidates. And so then they lost some key races, but that's coming from someone like McConnell's camp. And so I'm curious for voters going to the ballot box, how much of that really registers with them? You know, after the results come in, is going to be the next time we talk about this race, and then narratives will start to solidify. But I want to take this moment sort of before we get results to ask, is a win for any one of these three candidates worthy of a particular narrative? Does the world of Republican voters or the Republican Party look all that different if one versus the other ultimately wins this primary? Well, I would say that if McCormick or Oz win, then, you know, you can talk about how much resources matter and how much these two candidates that have have spent so much money, they've got higher name ID. But I think if Barnett wins, that speaks to like not only the power of things like the big lie and very like strong right wing views. The thing about Oz and McCormick is that they're sort of almost latecomers. They have they have tried to position themselves as Trump allies, but their backgrounds and a lot of things they've done in the past do not really align with that whatsoever. Whereas Barnett does. I think she comes off as like a truer sort of Trumpy conservative as those other two do. And if she wins, despite being just completely outgunned on sort of traditional campaign metrics, that'll sort of I think, speak to sort of where the GOP base is at at the moment. No, that's interesting, Jeff. Like, does the ideology ultimately matter more than the man, more than the endorsement? In a lot of these races, a Trumpy style candidate will ultimately win, whether they've been endorsed by Trump or not. So that question of which is more important, the beliefs or the sort of like seal of approval from Trump? No, that's interesting. Sarah, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's notable, too, that if Barnett wins, you know, she had a double digit loss in her congressional bid in 2020. So I think it raises real questions around kind of general election electability for the Republican Party. And are they able to nominate candidates that speak to the base, but then also, you know, will win a statewide election? And I think that's an open question in some of these races, particularly the governor's. Yeah, you actually, this will be a nice segue, but you actually have had multiple Democratic campaigns in Pennsylvania governor, as well as a couple of other states kind of actively trying to, like spending money to boost the most conservative candidate in their race. And that's probably because they remember 2010. They remember what happened. They remember Todd Akin in Missouri when Republicans, they squandered away a couple of very winnable Senate seats back in 2010 and 2012 by nominating these more extreme candidates. And Democrats facing a red wave environment might be saying, this is our best shot at holding the Senate or whatever. But it's a a very high stakes strategy as well because partisanship has become stronger today than it was even back in 2010 and 2012. And you could still imagine somebody like Kathy Barnett still winning in Pennsylvania uh, in a swing state in a Republican leaning year. Right. You may end up ultimately promoting someone who has even stauncher views and can still win. Thank you for that transition. And I do want to talk about the gubernatorial primary. But just for a moment before we do, is it fair to say that the Democratic primary is essentially a done deal and is going to be won by the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, who also 
happened to have a stroke over the weekend and is recovering. Yeah, I think that primary, you know, it had the potential to be competitive. You had some stronger or at least strong on paper candidates. So, for example, Representative Connor Lamb from Western Pennsylvania, who won a highly followed special election back in 2018, I believe it was, is also in the running. But he and State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta just have not gained traction in this race. Fetterman has statewide name recognition. He's well-liked. He has uh, kind of this unique image of a politician, for a politician of being, he's kind of like a very tall, heavily tattooed, bearded man who nonetheless has a master's degree in public policy from Harvard and is this accomplished politician having been a mayor and then lieutenant governor. So he's also has a lot of progressive views, but also has this kind of more it's not really a moderate image, but it, it is that's this kind of Trumpy image of being like, you know, I'm a tough talker and I can hang out with the working class voters with credibility type of thing. So he kind of covers all of his bases and I think is going to be a pretty strong candidate for Democrats in the fall. Yeah. Wore basketball shorts to meet the president and could be a future senator. So there you go. Hopefully he wears them on the floor of the Senate if he's elected. Yeah. No, but I think Nathaniel's right. And actually, Amy Walter at the Cook Political Report had a really interesting piece last week, kind of making this argument that we've known for a while that Republicans are really attracted to outsider candidates who are more so seen as fighters. But, you know, Fetterman fits that mold and I think, you know, gives Democrats potentially another playbook for types of candidates that also fit into this outsider theme. It's really interesting to see how he does both in the primary, but then in a general election and whether that bid to more working class voters works for a Democrat in a state like Pennsylvania. All right. Well, let's talk about the Pennsylvania gubernatorial primary. It's competitive on the Republican side. I think, again, in this case, it's sort of a done deal on the Democratic side. The presumptive nominee is the attorney general of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro. It looks like Doug Mastriano, the leading candidate on the Republican side, has a real lead. This isn't quite as close as the Senate primary. Would you all agree with that? And has anything been done to sort of shake things up? I know he's pretty right wing candidate and there has been some concern in more establishment parts of the party about a win from him. Has that changed much? I think at this point it would be pretty surprising if Mastriano didn't win, unlike the Senate race, the polls of the gubernatorial race have given Mastriano a wider lead. I guess it's not outside the realm of possibility he could lose if there is really a last second consolidation behind one of the other candidates. But that's been one of the big problems for the GOP among Republicans who are concerned about Mastriano is that you have essentially four candidates of note in this race at this point, And none of those other candidates have sort of dropped out to endorse another. You've had a couple candidates who didn't really ever take off, uh, drop out and endorse Lou Barletta, a former representative who lost the 2018 Senate race in Pennsylvania by 15 points as the GOP nominee. But that's not really going to move the numbers enough, uh, these couple minor candidates with three, four percent in most polls. So really, the question is, does one of the other two sort of leading candidates besides Barletta, who is trying to surpass Mastriano, which is U.S. Attorney Bill McSwain and former Delaware County Councilman Dave White, do either of them do something here at the last second, like drop out and endorse somebody or whatnot? And so far, there's no indication that's going to happen. So I think that really makes it tough to see a path for someone to actually defeat Mastriano. I don't want to rule it out because primaries can have all sorts of unexpected things. And polling is not always the most reliable when it comes to primaries. You have 
definitely more error in primary polling than general election polling. But Mastriano looks to be in a good position. He's got Trump's endorsement now, which may have just sort of solidified that edge. Yeah, Trump swooped in kind of at the last minute on Saturday and endorsed Mastriano, which kind of blew up the Republican establishment's efforts to coalesce around a non-Mastriano candidate. Before that, I would have said maybe there would have been a chance for somebody for them to consolidate and, and somebody else to beat Mastriano, especially if Trump had maybe played ball with the establishment and decided, yes, Mastriano is not electable, but Lou Barletta is or something like that. But now that Trump is behind Mastriano, I think it's clear that he's got the momentum in the race. And what are the concerns about Mastriano? So Mastriano was very actively involved in the effort to overturn the 2020 election in Pennsylvania. He held hearings in the state legislature. He actively strategized with the White House about kind of appointing new electors in the state. And if he were governor, he would have a significant amount of power to basically do that. So the governor in Pennsylvania appoints the secretary of state, first of all, who administers elections in the state. And the secretary of state certifies the electors that go to the electoral college and the governor signs that certification. I would imagine that a Governor Mastriano would not be inclined, to put it mildly, to certify or sign a, a certification of Democratic electors in Pennsylvania in 2024. And Mastriano has also explicitly endorsed the idea that the state legislature can just appoint new electors regardless of what the popular vote says. So I think that if Mastriano wins the primary and then the general election, which especially the general election, that's certainly a big if. But if he were to become the governor, I think that You'd probably have to say that Democrats need to win the Electoral College by more than 20 electoral votes in order to kind of withstand the very real potential that the results in Pennsylvania would be overturned against them. Look, Mastriano, a proponent of the big lie, he was at the January 6th assault on the Capitol, which there's so there's a chance actually the Republicans could nominate for Senate and governor two people who were both there that day. There's this thought that he's sort of embraced uh, Christian nationalism, uh, which is sort of this notion that white Christians are basically under threat in the United States. And I think, you know, given some recent events and you know, Buffalo and, and the sort of the rise of things like the Great Replacement Theory, you can make all sorts of connections with someone like Mastriano, who's also shared uh, QAnon conspiracy theory material. Uh, he is a particularly far right candidate. And I think speaking to what Nathaniel was talking about, if he were elected governor, it would be a very, very big deal. And a far-right candidate who has gained traction. I mean, you know, it was Trafalgar's poll of the race, and he was ahead by 10 points. Granted, it was 28% support, so not a majority by any means, but very likely to win the nomination there. Yeah, in these competitive multi-way races that we've been covering, you don't ultimately have to win that large of a slice of the electorate in order to head to the general election and have a real shot at elected office. A lot of these states don't have runoff elections like Texas and Georgia do, for example. We are going to talk more about Pennsylvania tomorrow night. So I do want to move along and we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. But let's move to North Carolina next, where, of course, there is an open Senate seat and is also where Madison Cawthorn is fighting for his life a bit in a primary after cascading scandals, I guess, if you, if you want to put it that way. We don't have to dig into every single one of them. But let's start with Cawthorn, actually, because I think that will be something of a test of if you have Trump's endorsement and you are loud and proud in Congress and can go viral and direct media attention, can you withstand establishment pressure? 
money spent against you, and a whole boatload of scandals. Do we have any indication of what the answer is? I feel like he's going to be fine. It's just a tricky situation. It's hard for me to judge. So yeah, so he's been subject to, you know, basically a boatload of opposition research and also self-inflicted scandals. So for example, he has been accused of insider trading. He's probably broken house ethics rules. He tried to take a loaded gun onto an airplane. He has driven with a revoked license multiple times. There are also kind of a series of not necessarily scandals. They're not illegal, but more embarrassing incidents for him, some kind of sexually suggestive and explicit videos that have been released. So it's hard for me to judge. This has all been for pretty recent too, right? In the last month or two, it's hard for me to judge how much of that has mostly come out in the national media and kind of in online circles and how much it's filtering down to folks in the district. This is actually a race where at 538, we look at polls and stuff like that. And unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of polling, especially given how quickly this race has kind of developed and all the scandals that have piled up. This is a race where I would actually love to be on the ground in the 11th district in North Carolina to kind of see, you know, what's being discussed and and things like that. But I feel like you know, between maybe those scandals not filtering down to the average voter, between the fact that in North Carolina, you only have to get 30% of the vote in order to avoid a runoff. And he's facing a very fractured field. He's got um, one main opponent, I would say, State Senator Chuck Edwards, but there's still several other alternatives. And to say that Cawthorn isn't going to get at least 30% of the vote just based on his name recognition and fame for being kind of a pro-Trump fighter, I feel like it's going to be hard for him to be under that 30%. So I feel like he'll probably win. I don't think it's going to be what your typical incumbent can normally expect, which is winning a primary with 70 or 80% of the vote. It's clearly going to be competitive. Right. As Nathaniel mentioned, like we don't have many polls of that race, but the one public poll we do have showed him leading Edwards 38% to 21%. Granted, that was down from a poll in mid-March from the same pollster that found him leading 49% to 14%. So to Nathaniel's point, I think the scandals and coverage around Cawthorn have taken a toll, but probably not a big enough toll that, you know, he won't win re-election. It's a really interesting play, though, from the GOP establishment on trying to oust a candidate that they're very clearly unhappy with. Minority leader Kevin McCarthy has not hidden his disdain for Cawthorn, particularly given his comments around GOP lawmakers and orgy. It's interesting that they haven't targeted other GOP controversial candidates like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert in the same way. You know, I think a running thread that we've kind of talked about in these primaries is the limitation of the GOP establishment to get their way. And provided that Cawthorn does win, that's definitely another blow for them. So in the spirit of motoring, the North Carolina's open Senate seat, how competitive are the primaries on either side there? We talked about this race at the beginning of the year when we sort of laid out consequential Senate races to watch this year. I think it was Nate's position that this will ultimately not actually be competitive in the general election. He fully expects the Republican to win. You can debate that if you want to. But that potentially means that whoever wins the Republican primary tomorrow has a pretty clear shot to a seat in the Senate. Maybe what do you say to that and how competitive is it ultimately? Well, I think you've got basically two candidates who are leading the way in that primary. And you had Governor Pat McCrory, who lost re-election in 2016 narrowly. Uh, to the current governor, Roy Cooper, Democrat. McCrory is trying to mount a comeback, and he led in a lot of the early polling. Of course, he had a lot of name ID because he'd been governor of the state. And what's interesting is that this primary got pushed back 
because of the redistricting situation in North Carolina. It was originally supposed to take place in March. And you do have to wonder if that hurt McCrory because he had sort of this early lead, had more name ID. And the way that the campaign has developed is that there's been just more money spent. And Ted Budd, a representative from North Carolina, had all this outside help from the Club for Growth. He had Trump's endorsement. And in the end, he now has what seems to be a lead over McCrory and would I think it'd be pretty surprising if Bud didn't win on Tuesday. So it's kind of uh, an interesting what if if this primary had taken place, you know, two and a half months earlier, like it was supposed to. Yeah. And on the Democratic side, the winner will almost certainly be a former uh, state Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley. I would agree, though, that especially in a kind of Republican leaning year in North Carolina, which is already a Republican leaning state, the general election isn't a done deal, but I'd certainly give Republicans the edge. You know, in a state like North Carolina, there's a good chance that the election seems relatively competitive because it's a state that's pretty inelastic, as we say. Sort of both parties have real high floors of support. Voting is somewhat racially polarized because you have a sizable black population that's heavily Democratic and a lot of white voters who are very Republican leaning. So I think that the election is not going to be some sort of blowout in North Carolina, but I do think it's going to be very challenging for Beasley in this sort of environment to actually win the race, even if Bud proves to be even slightly weak for a GOP nominee and she proves to be somewhat strong for a Democratic one in this sort of environment, it will be tough for a Democrat to win. It seems like there's something of a theme here. And, you know, three races is not a trend, as we know here at 538. But that the Democratic primaries in these potentially competitive or at least open seat races are not nearly as competitive as on the Republican side. Is this evidence that the Democratic establishment has more kingmaker authority and can clear the field for candidates it views as strong? Or is it an indication of the overall national environment? Republicans see this as a good cycle for them and they all want to get elected. And so they're going to shoot their shot in this cycle. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's neither. Is it fair to say that this is a trend? And what do you make of it? I mean, I think it might be a little bit of both, as you said, Galen, in the sense that I do think, I mean, we even saw it in the 2020 presidential campaign, right? In the presidential primary on the Democratic side. There is a somewhat greater tendency among Democrats to coordinate, to maybe even follow the establishment of the party, what the party leadership wants. The Democratic primary for Senate in North Carolina, originally it looked like it was going to be kind of a competitive two-way race between Beasley and Jeff Jackson, who's a member of the state legislature. Jackson dropped out and endorsed her, and now he's actually running in a Democratic-leaning congressional seat near Charlotte, where he will probably end up being the winner uh, in the end if nothing too crazy happens there. So I think, you know, to some extent, there's maybe greater coordination on the Democratic side. But at the end of the day, you also have a situation where it's a Republican-leaning environment. So you're going to have more Republicans looking to throw their hat in, especially in a state like North Carolina that is somewhat Republican-leaning, because, hey, if I win the nomination— I'm probably going to get elected to the Senate in this case, or I'm going to get elected to the House probably. So it's like a good opportunity and you feel like it's worth going for as a politician. And we know this from even just like political science literature on high quality candidates or candidates who are, I don't know, elected members of state legislatures. They're more likely to take their shot for higher office in an environment that's favorable to their party. And I guess I'd push back a little, Galen, in the sense of like, in the Pennsylvania Senate primary, as we are talking about, to some extent, Connor Lamb should have been 
the establishment's choice in that race. Mm. And he didn't really make a strong impression. And yes, Fetterman state politics has been involved in Pennsylvania. I don't mean to diminish that, but Connor Lamb kind of was seen as the centrist force of the Democratic Party. And I think while the Democrats over the Republicans have been able to kind of keep some of the more progressive or challenging aspects in line, I think, you know, we're going to see a number of primaries tomorrow where it might break in progressives advantage, particularly in the congressional races. And I think that dynamic and skepticism of the establishment is alive in the Democratic Party as well. So I do want to touch on Idaho and Oregon just very briefly, but To your point, Sarah, we're not going to talk a lot about the details of congressional races here, but are there particular themes that we're looking for? Perhaps that's one of them as we get the results in Tuesday night in these congressional primaries? Definitely within the Democratic primary side, looking at a number of House races, particularly blue seats or seats where a member is retiring and it's kind of become a melee to see who wins out, more of the establishment candidate or more of the progressive one. And particularly, I think for Democrats, a hard question for them to wrestle with this year is in some districts, it's only D plus five, D plus one. And this question becomes, who do they think has the strongest theory of the case to win? Yeah. There are a lot of, to your question, Galen, I'm going off of what Sarah said, there are a lot of races where progressives, I think, stand a good shot at a notable primary win on Tuesday. So that includes in Pennsylvania's 12th district, which is an open, safely Democratic seat. State Representative Summer Lee has the support of the progressive movement, and she is probably the front runner there. In Oregon's 5th district, you actually have a Jamie McLeod Skinner who is running against a kind of blue dog moderate Democrat in Kurt Schrader. And that looks like it's going to be a barn burner of a race. And I think a lot of progressives feel good about their chances of unseating another kind of moderate House member there. Also in North Carolina's fourth district, there's a progressive challenger. This is actually an open district, but there's a pretty strong progressive there, Nida Alam, although she's running against a state senator who has had a lot of outside support from groups like APAC, pro-Israel group. And that's actually been another minor theme is that APAC has been spending a good amount of money in, in North Carolina and Pennsylvania to stop the more progressive candidate. You've got a little kind of proxy war going on there. Nathaniel, do you want to mention crypto? (laughs) I mean, come on, we got to mention crypto. That is the other interesting thing about tomorrow's primaries, right? There's uh, a cryptocurrency billionaire, Sam Bankman-Fried, who has been funding a super PAC who has also been getting involved in a lot of these races in the North Carolina 4th. He's been spending for the more establishment candidate, Valerie Fouché, but most notably in Oregon's 6th district. He has spent $11 million, I believe, on Carrick Flynn, who going into the election was kind of just a random guy, you know, just like he was a mild-mannered researcher, but suddenly he's been kind of thrust into frontrunner status based on um, all this outside money. And people are wondering, what does a cryptocurrency billionaire want with this random guy? And the answer seems to be that he used to work, uh, Carrick Flynn used to work in the field of what's called effective altruism, which is basically looking at ways to donate money that is kind of the most effective for kind of preventing long-term threats to you know humanity and, and solving long-term problems, including, for example, preventing future pandemics, which has been a major focus of this cryptocurrency billionaire. So that's 
seems to be the connection there. It's rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. People are like, well, can we expect this guy to vote kind of independently when it comes to regulating cryptocurrency, which may very well be a major issue in the next few years? They haven't really appreciated the fact that you have multiple local elected officials who are actually women of color, who are maybe seen as being more in line for a promotion to Congress next and have this on paper less qualified uh, white man in Carrick Flynn, who seems to be stepping to the front of the line. And that's rubbed some people the wrong way. So it's going to be really interesting to see whether the massive amount of outside spending or the more established local politicians in Oregon's 6th District prevail there. So much to watch for tomorrow night. Final question before we move on to our issue polling. We haven't mentioned Idaho yet, which is a very unique situation. The Republican governor is being challenged by his lieutenant governor in the Republican primary there. This is going to cap off a pretty sort of dramatic back and forth between governor and lieutenant governor in the state in which the governor was enforcing COVID precautions. He would leave the state. The lieutenant governor as acting governor would like strike down those precautions. Needless to say, governor and lieutenant governor don't run on the same ticket in Idaho. Otherwise, something like this probably wouldn't happen. Do we expect this to be competitive? Because it seems like the lieutenant governor is an outsider, more Trumpy position here. The governor is a little more establishment. How competitive is it? Well, it looks like Brad Little, who's the incumbent Republican governor, is favored to win renomination. But Janice McEachin, who's the lieutenant governor running against him, does have Trump's endorsement. I was in preparation for this, was watching like a video she had posted to Facebook like a couple days ago. And the first thing was like, I believe that the 2020 election was stolen, basically, was what she opens with. So you can sort of see themes there. Uh, in terms of very much uh, a proponent of the big lie, leaning into a lot of anti-COVID views, as we've seen from her actions whenever she became acting governor. And this happens every now and then where you have a weird situation where the lieutenant governor challenges the governor in a primary. And it's always a little just strange. But I think given the disagreements that we saw just in terms of just governance, it's sort of this Really compelling, interesting race. But it does seem like Little, because there's one poll that we got, and it was 62-33 in favor of Little from just a, a couple weeks ago, that he'll probably survive. Um, but ba- that may not be true for some other incumbents in Idaho. Yeah, Idaho has several, actually, primary challenges against either sitting incumbents or more establishment candidates from pretty fringy elements on the right, pro-big lie supporters for Attorney General, Secretary of State, the 2nd Congressional District. So Idaho doesn't get a lot of attention nationally, but I think it's a really interesting encapsulation of the debates within the Republican Party today. And of course, because the state is so red, basically these races will be decided on Tuesday. So we'll be watching them closely. All right, we will absolutely follow up. Kentucky, I'm sorry we didn't get to you, but we will get to you Tuesday night. Let's move on and talk about the issues that are going to be motivating voters this fall. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. In the run-up to the midterm elections, 538 is partnering with Ipsos to conduct six polls that will gauge which issues are most important to Americans. The goal of the poll is not only to understand what concerns Americans, but also what they know and believe about those issues. For example, we know Americans are worried about inflation, but what do they think caused it? And what else do they know about the economy? In the first of these polls, the results did indeed show that inflation is the number one concern of Americans, with 52% saying so. That result comes alongside the latest consumer price index numbers out last week, showing that inflation remains high at an annual rate of 8.3%. So let's look underneath the hood of American public opinion here. Sarah, how was this poll conducted? Did Ipsos offer a list of things and people said whether or not they were worried about them? Was it open-ended? Give us some of the background details here to understand how we're going about this. Yeah, so it was actually a mixture, Galen. So we're going to be interviewing roughly the same group of 2,000 Americans from now until the midterm elections, and then we'll do one survey following the election to kind of get a sense of how the issues played out. And we've asked respondents what the most important issue is to them personally, to the nation, and then we also gave them the opportunity for an open-ended response. And the reason why we did three different ways was we really wanted to try to capture and control for does the way you ask this question really impact how voters answer it? And by and large, what we found in this survey was inflation, no matter how the question was asked, was the top issue that Americans had, both Republicans, independents, and Democrats, though of course there were partisan differences there. What were some of the other results? I know maybe at this point, inflation is not that big of a surprise. We've seen it in some other polling. Were the other results surprising at all? I don't think they necessarily were. For instance, what finished second basically was political extremism or polarization, which was one of the the options we listed in the what worries you most personally and what do you think is like the most important problem for the country? That's a high ranking one. People are very worried about just how polarized things are. And and we've seen in open-ended responses, you know, people saying like, no one's getting along. Everyone's like angered each other and, and we can't get anything done. And, you know, that sort of thing. We also saw, you know, crime and gun violence was something that popped up for about 20% of respondents. And so there were a lot of other issues, but it's just that inflation or increasing costs, which was the option. So many people picked that 52% as one of the most important issues facing the country. It was just a clear winner. And also in the open-ended version where we ask people to list issues, it was far and away the the top thing listed. It's, It's very apparent that this is like the top concern on Americans' minds. 
I guess I was surprised, though, that polarization ranked so highly. Now, to be clear, a number of pollsters ask this question. You know, it varies. So, for instance, like Gallup's most important problem polling isn't a perfect one to one. Like they don't have polarization listed as an option. But I think we tend to think about issues that drive people to the ballot box are ones that affect like the personal, you know, checkbook, essentially. So inflation being a great example of that or when healthcare and the debate around, you know, repealing the Affordable Care Act, that was a motivating factor. You know, polarization is kind of a a nebulous term to some extent. And it is interesting that so many Americans, for very different reasons, are worried and upset about it. Does it just mean the people in charge are doing things I don't like? The political extremism aspect of it? You know, we've talked on the podcast before that small d democratic norms don't motivate that many voters. I assume that in future surveys, we'll sort of look under the hood of that polarization question. But do we have a sense of like what people mean beyond that? Well, you know, it is true that slightly more Democrats listed political extremism and polarization as a top concern than Republicans. Independents were kind of in between when you think about margin of error. I think at the end of the day, it's like Democrats are, are somewhat more concerned about this than Republicans. But I do think that it is possible, to your point, that we didn't specifically say something like government leadership or political leadership. And it is possible that some of those responses pull in a little bit of that, too, because, for instance, to the comparison point you were talking about with Gallup, some response that associates with like poor political leadership, poor government leadership, government leaders not doing a good job, you see that. Uh, with a large percentage. So it is possible that also is a part of it, but just maybe political dysfunction is also tied into polarization and extremism. You know, maybe we're pulling in a few different things with this, and that's something that we'll have to dig into. So the focus of this survey, because you asked these questions up front, but then a good portion of the survey was dedicated to the nuances of what people are thinking about one particular issue, which was inflation in this survey. And then, as we've mentioned, in future surveys, you'll get more nuanced about some of the other things. What do people know or believe about inflation that are worth taking note of? One of the things that we wanted to know with all this was okay, people say inflation, but what do they actually know about inflation? What do they think is behind inflation? You know, what's most responsible? Or what what would they even like for leaders to prioritize, for instance, in terms of like keeping prices low or trying to keep unemployment low? We asked a battery of true-false questions, for example. So we were interested in seeing just how much people knew about a given issue. So for instance, you know, this one might have seemed obvious, and maybe it seemed to be obvious, I think, to, to most respondents. It's like, inflation was higher when Donald Trump was president. And 63% said, that's false. Obviously, most people knew that inflation is higher now than it was when Trump was president. You did see some interesting partisan differences in the answers to that. Republicans overwhelmingly said false. Most Democrats said false, but it was only about half of them. And a lot said, I don't know, um, which might speak to sort of how partisan views can influence your responses to some extent when it comes to just how well or poorly you think the economy is doing. On the flip side of that, we had a, a statement where we said inflation is higher now than it has been at any time since World War II. And people mostly got that wrong. 51% said true and only 15% said false. And Inflation was higher in the late 1970s and early 1980s than it is right now. 
But at the same time, I don't think that this is like a gotcha question of some sort. It's more of understanding how people may not know like the long history of inflation. Inflation isn't necessarily something that people think about a lot because when it's not happening, you go to the store and you buy something and you don't really think about like, oh, the price on that went up like a bunch. But when it's going up and you're living in that moment and you see inflation rising notably, well, that was like 50 cents cheaper two weeks ago. What the heck is going on for like just some you know small item at the grocery store? And what was really interesting with that question or that statement, I should say, is that actually a slight majority of people 55 or older said it was true. Now, that's the only age group that would have lived during the late 70s, early 80s period of inflation, really, to a large extent, or even, you know, people are even older than that who would have been adults living at that time, right? But even they thought that inflation was worse now. And maybe that speaks to their lived experience. A lot more older people are more likely to be on, say, a fixed income. We had a lot of open-ended responses about how I'm on a fixed income and it's making life really hard for me, basically. Inflation is. And so, Maybe it's like, well, I was working and I was able to get through it because maybe I made more money or something at the time when inflation was worse than the 1980s. But now I'm on a fixed income. And so my life just feels a lot worse right now dealing with inflation and rising prices. I was really struck overall by how much Americans did really understand the landscape. And, you know, to Jeffrey's point, yes, there were questions where the majority was incorrect or a significant like plurality essentially said they didn't know. But for the most part, right, Americans understood that inflation was higher now than it was under Trump. They understood that an unemployment was at its lowest level since the start of the pandemic. And I think, you know, something else we'll talk about here a bit later is Americans also kind of broadly, at least for the two main reasons, supply chain breakdowns and COVID-19 pandemic, there was a lot of consensus around that being responsible for inflation. There were also examples in that question of partisan answers that more Republicans thought, for instance, um, government spending had something to do with inflation and more Democrats thought maybe corporations had something to do with it. It speaks to right that partisanship and how we view things. But again and again, I was kind of struck by Americans really understanding the landscape and really, to Jeffrey's point, feeling the repercussions of inflation at home. You know, my good use of polling or bad use of polling brain here is curious, what are we hoping to get out of asking these questions and trying to understand what Americans' knowledge base is? Does it tell us something about how politics might play out? Does it tell us something about how either party might better use these issues in an election? What are we learning in terms of usable information? Yeah, so I think it is something that could potentially speak to political messaging as we head toward November. You know, for instance, I think you have heard at times Democrats try to figure out ways to say, okay, well, we know inflation's bad right now, but maybe trying to like say, well, at least like this aspect of the economy is doing okay and whatnot. But I think at the end of the day, it's sort of cold comfort to people to find out inflation was worse in the late 70s and early 1980s. Trying to make like the case that the economy isn't that bad is really challenging. And I think maybe that true false question, the the fact that people don't realize that maybe inflation has been worse at different times, it, it just speaks to like telling people that probably isn't going to help you all that much politically. And it does speak to maybe like if people are feeling like it's this bad, even people who were alive when inflation was worse gives Republicans a real messaging up. Yeah, I was going to say, or even the unemployment rate, right? People know that the unemployment rate is super low right now. But they're not like, oh, OK, that's more important to me or I'll give you credit there. Like they're still really concerned about inflation. 
Right. And I think, you know, there were some answers that we got in the open ended uh, questions that we asked where people sort of express themselves about how is inflation affecting you or even just more generally, like what's the most important issue? You know, you did have people saying like, well, unemployment's low, but, you know, lots of places are looking for workers and can't find them. And like, that's a problem. So if you're going to like, I don't know, your local Arby's and they're saying hiring and, you know, you're standing in line because there's only one person working because they can't find someone else to work. It seems like the economy, even if it's not doing terribly, is not sink. Things seem out of whack. And inflation is the most notable part of that, but it doesn't mean that other aspects are smoothly operating either. I think overall in this series, the the conceit or idea behind the project is to understand what issues Americans are really concerned about, and then what do they actually know about the issues and how is it affecting their lives? And I think that what we've seen here in our deep dive on inflation is Americans' understanding is pretty good, and they're not swayed by things like unemployment being low, because something we saw in open-ended responses was they just don't feel that their paycheck is covering the essentials that they need right now. And I think, too, to Jeffrey's point around political messaging, you know, the fact that there was so much consensus among respondents in the poll for what was to blame around inflation does speak to this isn't just a political brinkmanship game. It is something that people are feeling at home and is the most important issue in this poll, at least so far. We'll be checking in with the same respondents each month, so we'll see if that changes. But right now is a very serious issue. Yeah. And, you know, sort of speaking to thinking about, like, again, the political impact of all this, we're a little less than six months from the election. Things could change in various ways. But in the poll, we found only 30 percent of independents had a favorable view of President Biden and 55 percent had an unfavorable opinion. And about half of independents listed inflation as a top concern. And so if you're thinking about inflation being this leading problem for the country and the fact that it doesn't seem like it's something that's going to be going away anytime soon, if you're just thinking about like easy messaging for Republicans looking to take over the House and Senate and win over some governorships, talking about inflation seems like an easy way to message and criticize the Biden administration and potentially win over some swing voters. Obviously, not all independents are swing voters, but most swing voters are independents. So seeing those sorts of numbers among independents and knowing that they're worried about inflation seems like, you know, something that could really matter a lot to this political cycle. All of this polling information is is really fantastic. I'm so glad we're we're doing this partnership and getting to look under the hood on a whole set of issues that we usually get just sort of like top line information on. I'm curious what are some of the other issues that we want to assess the knowledge base of the American public on? And are there any in particular that we think Americans are really knowledgeable about this issue and the nuances of it, but they might not be so knowledgeable about this other issue? What questions are we going to ask going forward? And do we have any expectations for the sort of knowledge base? Well, I think a leading one is definitely the political extremism or polarization topic because that is ranking second in our first poll in terms of what people are most worried about. And I think obviously in the wake of what happened in Buffalo over the weekend and you know the fact that white supremacy mixed in with political radicalization is something that is not going away. And maybe that's going to be a topic that actually grows in salience for voters as we move toward November is an opportunity to learn more about what people think about it and what they know about it. I mean, I think we were already we're sort of thinking that that was the next choice. But I think after uh, you know recent events, there's even more reason to pursue that as sort of the next thing that we dig into. 
I'm not exactly sure what people will say they know and don't know. We don't even know what questions we're asking them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right, right. Once we publish these results for the first one, we were going to immediately go back to the drawing board to figure out what we were going to ask. But I do think that that's definitely the next topic that we want to dig into. Yeah. To Jeffrey's point, I could also see crime or gun violence. That was number three in terms of most important issues in our survey, spiking again, perhaps after what happened in Buffalo and Orange County in California this weekend. But then again, you know, one thing that was interesting is we were out in the field when the draft opinion was leaked from the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. Granted, at that point, like 80 percent of responses were in, so there weren't a lot left. But abortion did not rank highly as an issue. And we had also kind of done an earlier poll in April to try to just gauge a baseline. And it also was not a high ranking issue. We're obviously going to be paying very close attention to that, though, as the Supreme Court makes its final decision here in June for how that shifts the landscape. And that's an issue in particular that we know from other reporting that Amelia Thompson DeVoe and others have done at the site is just something that Americans don't want to talk about and don't have the best understanding of either. I could see crime or gun violence and immigration kind of falling into that bucket as well. Can I ask, as someone who wasn't involved in the poll, did you notice an increase in people saying abortion was one of their top issues after the draft was leaked? I think the issue was sort of with the the sample since 80% was in before. So it was kind of tough to say, okay, to be clear, 5% of respondents for at least on personal and uh, 4% for the country as a whole in terms of like, you know, what's most personally worrying to you and what's the biggest issue facing the country. And people could select up to three and still only four to 5% selected abortion, I think is telling for if you are one of those people who's trying to say that abortion is going to completely change the dynamics of the midterm, it should maybe cause you to pause. I mean, we'll see what happens, but I think it, it speaks to like, a lot has to change, I think, for that dynamic to be possible. All right. Well, this was all really good information. And the results of this first round of polling are going to be published on the 538 website tomorrow. So 538.com, go check it out. We've discussed some of the results, but there's a lot more to dig into there. Jeff and others who called the respondents as well from this polling and actually talked to them and heard them talk about how they view inflation and how it's impacting them. And so you can read some of the quotes there as well. Go check that out on Tuesday. And then, of course, stick around on the website. We're going to be live blogging the whole evening as results come in from the five states that we mentioned, the primaries there. And then later on in the evening, we're going to be recording a late night podcast. So we have content on content on content for you at the 538 website and also in this feed. That is it for now. We got to rest up for a crazy day tomorrow. Thank you, Jeff, Sarah, and Nathaniel. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Joe. Hey, thanks, Galen. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary Curtis and Emily Vineski are on audio editing. And Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.